May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. It's good to be with you this evening, worshiping together and gathered around God's holy word together, hearing Christ preach and teach to us through his word. Our sermon text for today will come from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 37 to 50, and I encourage you to look for that in your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you may look in the worship order and you'll see it printed for you there. As you know, we've been walking through the Gospel of John for many weeks now. And we see this story unfolding before us week after week. And each time we encounter Jesus, we see Him doing some amazing thing or teaching some amazing thing, and we see mixed responses from the crowds around Him. Last week, as the story wound down, we found that Jesus exited stage left. He departed and hid Himself from the crowds. And I tried to show that Jesus did this to demonstrate that the glory of God was departing from the temple and from the people and that God was going to bring judgment against His own covenant people. That this was a sign that the Lord's face was no longer going to shine upon them, that He was instead going to bring curses upon them. He was turning His back upon them and leaving them in utter darkness and death. Now John's Gospel was written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing you may have eternal life in His name. And yet you know as well as I do that not everyone who reads or hears this story believes. In fact, not everyone who lived the story believes. And it raises the question, why? Well, that's what we're going to explore in this text today. Why do some people not believe in Jesus? Our sermon text for today is John 12, 37 to 50. And if you are willing and able, I invite you to stand and pay close attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of God says... Though he had done so many signs before them, and they still did not believe in him, so the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my word has a judge. The word that I have spoken 
will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. That is the word of God. And may God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, Amen. you may be seated. A couple of years ago, some of us, some of us guys got together and we went to see the movie Fury. If you haven't seen the movie Fury, I can either recommend it to you or not recommend it to you. That's up to you whether you want to watch a war movie or not. But those of us who went saw this war movie about a tank crew who go on a mission, Mission Impossible. And on one hand, when you see the story, if you ever have a chance to watch the movie, then you'll know that on one hand, it is an intense, dark, and gritty story of war, perhaps one of the most gritty you'll ever see. But on the other hand, it's also an insightful, even devout and graceful story of human life. In one of the scenes that stirred my heart, you have a scene of the tank crew sitting in the belly of their tank, waiting and drinking, smoking and talking when the conversation takes an unexpected turn. One of the tank crew members, Boyd, says to his fellow members, here's a Bible verse I think about sometimes, many times. It goes, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. Norman mumbles, Send me. And War Daddy says, Book of Isaiah, chapter 6. The conversation about Isaiah's call takes place in the belly of this tank before an intense battle. And what's interesting to me is how the tank crew identified themselves with Isaiah the prophet. They related their mission with his mission, and they felt that their mission would not be complete until they saw buildings laid waste, houses vacated, and land desolated. And I wonder what in the world would compel a group of men like this to serve such a temporal cause and fight against the odds the way that they did. Many years ago, I was a part of a school that emphasized missions and evangelism, perhaps above everything else. And every year in the fall, the school would host an evangelism forum that focused on missions and missionaries and mission work. And in between the keynote speakers, in the downtime between sessions, men and women who felt a call to mission would go up to the mic. It was open mic, and everyone was encouraged to go and speak into the mic and tell who they were and where they wanted to go and to declare in the words of Isaiah the prophet, Here am I, send me. I can still recall my experience with that and the things that I said all those years ago. Here am I, send me. It was moving. 
It was truly moving to see so many men and women who wanted to serve the Lord stand in front of a crowd of people and offer themselves in service to God in that way. Here am I, send me. Lord, send me. However, it occurred to me, even in those days, as I read the Bible and tried to make sense of what was happening in the Scriptures, that the story of God's calling Isaiah might have actually been misapplied to our situation. In the words of Inigo Montoya, I felt as though I should have said to some of my fellow friends and missionary wannabes, you keep using that phrase, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Here am I, send me. Yes, it's true that the words go and send appear in this text of Isaiah, but that doesn't make it a missionary text. As John explains to us in the story we just read, Isaiah the prophet was not sent on an evangelistic mission to soften hearts or sharpen minds or open eyes or even unstop ears. Rather, Isaiah was sent on a prophetic mission to harden hearts and to blind eyes and to dull minds and to plug up ears lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Now it was the shocking reality of this prophetic mission that prompted Isaiah to say, How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? And in Isaiah 6, the Lord says, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. God sent Isaiah to preach his word until judgment came upon his people. So Isaiah sent on this prophetic mission to the Bible belt of his day. He was not sent out to seek and save the lost as we have been sent out. He is sent out to stupefy and to shatter the lost inside the church. To bring judgment to God's covenant people. Isaiah describes himself as a sign and seal to people, and he is sent to sign and seal the fate of his kinsmen, not to stir up their faith. And so he preached at one point in his letter, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. All of that is in the background of John 12 and the story that we are considering today. All of that leads up to this moment when John tells us that what God started doing in the days of Isaiah, He continued to do even in the day of Jesus and brings it to fulfillment. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has come as God in the flesh. He is a sign and symbol in Israel from the Lord God. But now He is hiding His face from His people. He did many signs among them. He turned water into wine. He cleansed the temple. He saved a little boy from a terminal illness. He healed a blind man. He fed thousands. He walked on water. He confronted religious leaders. He opened the eyes of a blind man. And he raised a man from the dead. He did all of these signs and still he got mixed results. 
They would not believe in him. And they could not believe in him, John tells us. And I want you to let that soak in for a moment because so many people, some of you and people beyond this congregation, so many people in our culture will say, if only I had been there, if only I could have seen Jesus or heard Jesus, if only I could see a sign from God, then I would believe. And yet in this story we see people who experienced all of those things firsthand, eyewitnesses of the signs Jesus performed. And yet John tells us that on one hand, they would not believe. On the other hand, they could not believe. So, so much for seeing is believing, right? Despite all these signs, they would not believe. Why? So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The word that says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Despite all these signs, they could not believe. Why? For again, Isaiah has said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. They would not believe because they could not believe. And why could they not believe? They could not believe because they were not willing to believe, and they did not believe because they were not able to believe. And they were unwilling and unable to believe because God was not willing to make them able. At least at that time. Calvin puts it like this. In the former passage, the prophet testifies that none believe but those whom God of His free grace enlightens for His own good pleasure, the reason of which does not appear. For since all are equally ruined, God, of His mere good pleasure, distinguishes from others those whom He thinks fit to distinguish. But in the latter passage, He speaks of the hardness by which God has punished the wickedness of an ungrateful people. Now, if this seems like a hard word to you, let me remind you of something Jesus said earlier in the story of John's Gospel. I take you back to his conversation with Nicodemus where he said, No one can see the kingdom of God. No one can enter into the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. I take you back to the seaside, to the shore of Galilee, in the synagogue at Capernaum where Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. And he said, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by my Father. Now I know that no one wants to hear this. 
In our flesh, we hate to hear these kinds of things. No one wants to hear what I'm about to say, but here's the bottom line. The reason these people would not believe and could not believe is because the Spirit did not give them a new heart. The Father did not give them to His Son. The Spirit did not blow them to Jesus. The Father did not draw them to Jesus at that time. At that time. At that time. And the reason I'm emphasizing at that time is because up to this moment in the story, that's how it appears. And yet I also want to remind you of what Jesus said just a few moments ago if we had been listening to Him in this story, if we'd been hanging out with Him at the temple, this is what we would have heard. Jesus says, When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all to Myself, all people, all things to Myself, when I am lifted up from the earth. So after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, some of those people who were unwilling and unable to believe in Him became quite willing and quite able to believe in Him by the grace and mercy of God. In other words, prior to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, many people were unwilling and unable to believe in Him. This is all a part of God's purpose and God's providence in bringing Jesus to the cross. But after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, many of those people who today are rejecting Him, who today are resisting Him, who today are refusing to believe in Him, repented of their sins and put their trust in Christ. And we'll see that later on. Now, I know that this kind of teaching bothers a lot of people. And i got to be honest with you, it bothers me a little bit. If you think you're uncomfortable, you should be standing right here. But here's the truth of the matter. The truth is that faith is a gift from God. It is not a work of man. Faith is a privilege. It is not a right. And God gives this gift of faith to whom He wishes to give it. Just as He hardened, He hardens whom He wants to harden, and He shows mercy to whom He wants to show mercy. Now here's my pastoral counsel for you. In case you're wondering, well, I wonder where I fit in this group. You know, am I, am I being blinded and, and made dumber? Am I, are my ears stopped? Am I, is my heart hard? Do I really have faith in Jesus? What's going on with me? Here's my pastoral counsel to you. If you can believe, believe. And if you cannot believe, then pray that you will be able to believe. If you are willing to believe, then believe. And if you are unwilling to believe, then repent and believe, or you will perish in your sins. 
as I wondered about that tank crew and what would compel them to go on what seemed to be a futile mission. I also wonder about men like Isaiah the prophet. What would compel Isaiah to go on this prophetic mission and preach to his people the way he did, knowing full well that the results were in the bag? In other words, knowing full well what was going to happen. He went out not expecting a fruitful ministry, not expecting mountains of converts. He had no chance of filling up his church with people because God told him that's not going to be the case. What would compel him to go out and preach with such confidence and with such boldness in the Lord? Well, John tells us in the story what compelled him. John says that Isaiah said all of these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. In other words, Isaiah said all of these things because he saw Jesus and spoke about Jesus. Now, if you know anything about history and space and time, you might be thinking, Isaiah came centuries before Jesus. Jesus was born of a virgin at a different time than Isaiah. How in the world did Isaiah see him? And this is John's subtle way of saying to us that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted in the temple, and he saw the train of his robe filling the room, Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus Christ. And that's what made all the difference in his life. The Lord revealed himself to Isaiah. And so in that God-centered vision, the prophet saw the one true King, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was revealed to him that God is sovereign. He saw Him seated on a throne above the circle of the earth. And God is exalted and majestic. He saw Him high and lifted up. And God is holy. Holy, holy, holy. There's no sin. There's no flaw. There's no error. There's no shadow in Him. He's holy. And that God is glorious and powerful. This is what Isaiah saw. This is who Isaiah saw. And I should point out that he saw the Lord in this time and in this place in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, King Uzziah probably doesn't mean anything to you, but he meant the world to Isaiah and to the people of God because he was a king. But he was a leper king, a king who had disobeyed God and suffered under his own sins and eventually died. And it was in that year that Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Why is that significant? What's significant, not only because it gives us a way of marking time, that that happened in real space-time history, it's, significant, it's more significant because it marks the time when the mortal human king was removed so that Isaiah the prophet could see the immortal king of kings. It is my hope and prayer that God grants you that kind of vision of the Lord Jesus Christ today. And I say this especially for those of you who are anxious and worried about politics and elections and the economy and America. 
You need to know what Isaiah knew, what he saw, and that is that Jesus is truer and better than any president, and he is truer and better than every candidate on the scene. When our political heroes fall out and fade away, it is then that we see the Lord Jesus Christ seated on his throne, high and lifted up. So let me warn you. Do not walk in the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy the things that they call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread. But the Lord of hosts, He is the one you shall fear and regard as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And He will become to you a sanctuary. But if He does not become a sanctuary to you by faith, He will certainly become a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to those who do not believe. And many will stumble on Him. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. In the midst of John's Gospel, he pauses to tell us that Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what moved him to worship God with fear and trembling in spirit and in truth. And that is what moved him to go on mission with God in reverence and awe. That vision shaped the way he thought and felt and lived. And I hope that the vision of Christ that we are seeing in the Gospel of John will do the same for you and for me. We have seen His glory, glory as of the one and only who is from the Father, who came full of grace and truth. And though He is hiding His face from us now in this story, like our brother Isaiah, we will wait and we will hope for Him to return. Now to go back to the story in John 12, what do you see? In verse 42, we find out that no sooner do we learn that the people were unwilling and unable to believe in Jesus. And John tells us, nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him. And so for a brief moment, our hearts are lifted up again. And we think, whew, finally, some people are putting their trust in Christ. But then John quickly adds this very tragic note. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be desynagogued. They would not be synagogueless people. They wanted their faith in Jesus to be personal and private, but not public. They wanted to keep the light of Christ to themselves. They did not want the light of Christ to shine out into the darkness and expose them as being believers or followers in Jesus. They didn't want their family and friends or their co-workers or classmates to know that they actually believed in Jesus, that He is the Son of God, the Christ. They couldn't have people knowing that they were followers of Jesus, disciples of Christ, students and servants of this man Jesus. Why? Because they would lose their position. They would lose their status. They would lose face 
in the face of the community. And they weren't about to do that, not even for Jesus' sake. And John tells us why. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Have you ever been there? You ever done that? You ever, you ever been in their sandals or their togas? You, you kind of feel that way? Like you admire Jesus, you like Jesus. And in your private life, you think Jesus is totally awesome and glorious and cool and you're learning from Him. And yet in your public life, the last thing you want anyone to know is that you really love Jesus, that you trust Him, that you even obey Him. You ever have that? You ever feel embarrassed or ashamed of what you believe about the gospel of Jesus Christ? And you can relate to these guys. We've all been there, right? I mean, let's be honest. We've all been in that position where we actually, even though we don't frame it this way, we actually prefer the immediate pleasure that comes with the praise of men right now than the ultimate pleasure that comes with the praise of God later. In other words, sometimes we would rather fit in with the world right now than be cast out by the world even for a moment. And I don't know about you, but I, I'll speak about myself a little bit, and maybe you can relate to this. One reason I find myself doing things like that from time to time is because I tr actually trust God more than I trust men. And so I'm hedging my bets. I'm thinking God will forgive me. I'm taking my chances with God rather than with men. And that's no way to live. Jesus makes it clear in here that there is no such thing as an anonymous disciple. There's no such thing in his community as a secret admirer. There's no such thing as a closet Christian. Part of following Jesus means following Jesus out of darkness into light, out of the private sphere into the public sphere. Part of following Jesus means coming out of secrecy and shame into revelation and glory. It's about being exposed. When you go to the cross, there's nothing to hide. You cannot follow Jesus and remain hidden in the shadows, ashamed of who He is, ashamed of what you are. You must come out into the light. You must leave the darkness behind. And here's why. And it's the last thing I'm going to say for today. Because God has set a day in which He will judge the living and the dead. And each one of us is going to stand trial and give an account for our life and our deeds. We're going to give an account for our attitudes and our actions. Jesus says in this story, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them. And if we stop there, we would all be relieved. Jesus isn't going to judge me. You can see it on a t-shirt in a Christian bookstore. Not even Jesus judges me. We could probably make some money doing that. It would be wrong, but I'm sure there would be a market for it. Now, Jesus says, I do not judge him. 
For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So far, so good. But then he goes on to say, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. And who is this judge? What is this judge? It is the word that I have spoken that will judge him on the last day. So I must tell you plainly and honestly that there's not a person in this room who will ever be able to plead ignorance. None of us will be able to say we did not know the truth. We did not hear the gospel. We didn't know what Jesus expected of us. None of us will be able to explain away our trespasses and sins. There is no amount of theological gymnastics, psychological gymnastics that will help us get away from our trespasses and sins. If we reject the gospel, if we do not receive it by faith, the gospel will rise up to judge us. The very word that was sent to save us will rise up to condemn us. The word of life will become to us a word of death if we do not hear the words of Christ and hold fast to them by faith. Jesus says clearly that the command of God is life. And I understand many of us think the command of God is death. But here he says the command of God is life. And it is eternal life for anyone and everyone who believes in him. And here is the command of God. Throughout John's Gospel, Jesus has been preaching this command of God, and I'm simply echoing it for you now. Here is the command of God that is life for you. Turn away from yourself and trust in your Savior Jesus. Turn away from darkness and trust in the light so that you may become the children of light. That command of God is life to you and not death. Obey it with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul.